hope you haven't closed your Bibles yet. We're going to jump right back to Revelation 21. And I didn't want Alberta to have to read 30-something verses. So we're going to keep reading. You got Revelation 21? Let's keep going. Just see what continues to unfold here in John's vision of the new heaven and new earth. So let's pick it up in verse 6. It's John, excuse me, Revelation, written by John. Revelation 21, verse 6. We're going to read all the way to 22.5. Here we go. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Its radiance like the most rare jewel, like Jasper Clear's crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve Twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also, also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate. I don't know if I'm saying that right. The fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, carnelian, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, or jacinth, the twelfth, amethyst. And the twelve gates wore twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 22.1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit 
each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. As we say where I'm from, if if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. Amen. Notice 21.1. John sees a new heaven and a new earth coming down that replaces the first heaven and the first earth. But then for the remainder of the section, did you notice that what he describes is not a new earth with mountains and hills and valleys and rivers. What he describes is a city that looks like a temple with garden-like features. So what's up with that? John says, I I see a new heaven and new earth, but then he describes a temple city with garden-like features. What's going on here? Why does John say there's a new earth coming, but then he describes it like this big temple city garden thing? Why is he equating the new world with a garden-like city temple? Because he wants us to understand that the end of time will look like the beginning of time. The Bible ends with this vision of a holy garden-like city that fills the new earth where God will live alongside humans. And the Bible began with a similar picture. Genesis opens by telling us how God created the earth on which he places a human couple. The earth is designed to be a divine residence where God intends to coexist with people. God's plan, of course, is disrupted when the first human couple disobey God and they're removed from his presence. And then as we'll see as we continue to study Genesis, the entire story of the Bible that follows is about how the earth can once again become a place shared by God and man. So God undoubtedly, undoubtedly, God intended the opening scene and the closing scene of the Bible to match closely so that the entire story is framed by that meta-narrative, if you will, that big story. One scholar says it this way, The prophets looked forward to a time when the end would look like the beginning and everything would be restored to its original state. There's a reason why the end looks like the beginning. If you believe that God wrote the Bible, then you believe that everything is where it is on purpose. These aren't just random, loosely connected documents. That God is doing something in a big picture kind of way in the Bible. We spent a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 3, 20 sermons to be exact. Praise the Lord. We're going to move faster through the rest of Genesis, I promise. We spent a lot of time looking at the trees of the forest, if you will. What we're going to do this morning is zoom out and try to look at the forest itself, the big picture of the Bible, and consider how Genesis 1 through 3 shapes the entire storyline of the Bible. I want to spend some time this morning considering how the Bible fits together. Why does the end match the beginning? 
what's going on there. This is often called biblical theology. Biblical theology. Biblical theology, as some pastors say, attempts to read the whole story of the Bible and ask how each part relates to the whole. Biblical theology is the way of reading the Bible as one story by one divine author that culminates in who Jesus Christ is and what he has done so that every part of Scripture is understood in relation to him. Biblical theology helps us understand the Bible as one big book with lots of little books that tell one big story. The hero, of course, and centerpiece of the story from cover to cover is Jesus Christ, end quote. In other words, biblical theology is this idea that because we believe God wrote the entire Bible, we believe that the entire Bible is the, the comprehensive story of God and that its pieces fit together on purpose. It's a single book, and this is so important for us, especially if we did grow up in church and we heard all the stories in Sunday school about David and Goliath and Jonah and the well or the fish, depending on what translation your teachers were using. You know, we heard all the stories, but we, we might not have heard that it is the Bible is telling a story, one story. It's not a bunch of loosely connected moral fables. And the hero isn't, you know, David. The hero, of course, is the Lord Jesus. It all culminates and points to, is fulfilled in him. So we're going to do some biblical theology this morning. You guys ready? Great. The rest of you, welcome to just <laughs> listen in and I pray that it's helpful. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our plan. I'm going to try to give you an overview of how the presence of God with his people on the earth is seen throughout the Bible from beginning to end. Beginning to end. So overview, number one. And then we're going to look at the last temple, number two. Then thirdly, the first temple. And fourthly, the current temple. And then we'll close with some application and see if any of this means anything for our lives today. So overview, last temple, first temple, current temple. The presence of God among his people is an organizing theme of the whole Bible. There are other ways to organize the Bible. I think this is one of the main ones. And we... I want to take this as probably the main theme because the Bible itself lays it out as bookends. Again, as I said, it ends and begins in the same way. This seems very suggestive for how we should understand the Bible. The big story, if that's true, of the Bible is how the relational presence of God with his people was once lost and yet now is in the process of being restored. The relational presence of God, though once lost, is now in the process of being restored. Let's see how this theme runs through the whole Bible. The opening chapters of Genesis portray the earth as God's dwelling place, the earth as God's cosmic temple where he lives with his people. This reality, of course, is quickly shattered when Adam and Eve disobey God. They're kicked out of the garden. Interestingly, though, people continue to live on the earth. But God's presence isn't on the earth. It's now, in the rest of Scripture, as you move through Scripture, it's now associated with heaven. God doesn't live on the earth after sin. He's in heaven. From there, he occasionally comes down to meet with select individuals. We see this in Genesis in the first half of Exodus. And then in the second half of Exodus, a major development occurs, though. After God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, he enters into a covenant relationship with them at Mount Sinai. He tells them to build him a tent that will become a dwelling place for him in the midst of their camp. This is a big step forward in the biblical story because God now once again lives with his people on the earth. After the Israelites enter the promised land of Canaan, this tent or tabernacle is set up in Shiloh, stays there for a long time. Eventually, the tent or tabernacle is replaced by a temple built by King Solomon in Jerusalem. 
The temple was now God's residence on the earth. So we're moving from garden to tent to temple. For almost 400 years, God coexisted with his people in Jerusalem in the temple. But then another major reversal happens in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians come in and destroy the city, destroy the temple. 50 or 60 years go by. 538 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild, rebuild their temple. And finally it's finished in 516 B.C., 70 years after it was destroyed, just as Jeremiah prophesied. The books of Haggai and Zechariah show us that this restoration of the temple was divinely sanctioned, telling us that God was still committed to dwell with his people in Jerusalem. So temple is destroyed, people exiled, people come back, rebuild the temple. What happens next? Well, the next major development in the biblical story is the coming of Jesus. Another 400 or so years go by, and as we learn in the opening of John's gospel, God descends in the flesh and tabernacles or dwells or lives with human beings. John 1.14, the Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh. Word there means tabernacled or dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God in Jesus once again lives with his people on the earth. This is why Jesus says his body is the temple. In John 2, 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they all say, you're crazy, Jesus. <laughs> you're ridiculous. It took like, forget the number, it took 30-some years or whatever the number was. It took a long time to build this temple. And you're going to say, destroy it and we'll build it in three days? But then he clarifies, or John, the writer of John, uh, the, John's gospel says, he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus literally said the temple now is his body, that it will be destroyed, and then it will be raised in three days. Then his death, resurrection, ascension back to heaven to prepare the way for another significant step of the process by which God will come to live with humans again. Jesus hints at this in his conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4 when they're discussing the place where God is worshipped. She says, you know, you say we must worship in Jerusalem, we say we worship here at Mount Gerizim. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you got it all wrong. A time is coming and is now here where you won't worship on some mountain, but you'll worship in spirit and truth. And of course, Jesus is the truth. And his truthfulness must be spiritually perceived. What Jesus is doing, he's locating worship in himself. Through his death and resurrection, he becomes the temple of the living God, the focus and place of worship. So he ascends to heaven, and then, 40 days later, of course, the next major, major development is the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost. God's present, presence is now linked to the newly created church. The church becomes the new temple of God. Wherever the followers of Jesus are, the presence of God is there with them by his spirit. As the church expands throughout the earth, God's dwelling place is also expanded. The ever-expanding church of Jesus Christ replaces the Jerusalem temple as the place where God lives on the earth. But that, even that, is not the end of the story. The Bible gives us one more development before the process of God inhabiting the whole earth reaches completion. As the end of Revelation reveals that we just read, there's coming a time where all evil, every unclean thing, will be banished from the earth, never allowed in again. And the earth will be filled with the presence and glory of God. So much so that there won't even be a need for a sun. Because God's glory will light up the world. Literally, this is what John sees in Revelation 21 through 22. So, 
in five minutes or so, I tried to show how the presence of God goes from garden to tabernacle to temple to Jesus to the church to the new Jerusalem. Do you see this theme? Do you see how these dots connect? God's plan is to dwell with His people on the earth. We're still in that plan. That plan is still in the process of being fulfilled. But it is well on its way to completion. Now, number two, let's look at the end, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. The last temple, number two, the last temple. You might remember as I read John, excuse me, Revelation 21 earlier that this description of the New Jerusalem is, is unusual for a city. If you have Revelation 21 open, look at verse 15 and 16. Revelation 21, 15 and 16, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length, with, its length and width and height are equal. So what is the New Jerusalem? What shape for you geometry majors? A cube. He's describing a cube. What's the only other cube mentioned in the Bible? Bible trivia. You can blurt out your answers. We won't shame you if you're wrong. Good job. I don't know who that was, but good job. That's right. Absolutely. The Holy of Holies. The innermost part of the temple was also a perfect cube. So the New Jerusalem resembles the Holy of Holies in that it's a perfect cube. And notice that it's also made of pure gold, just like the Holy of Holies. Verse 18, the wall was built of jasper, while the city, New Jerusalem, was pure gold, clear as glass. So the New Jerusalem resembles the Holy Holies. It's a, it's a cube, pure gold. It's immeasurable. These measurements, I forget the numbers, they, they multiply out into miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. This is not a small city. It's meant to say or to show us that this is an immeasurably big city in the shape of a cube lined with gold. Then, John says in verse 22, look what he says in 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So, the New Jerusalem is meant to be an expanded Holy of Holies. By associating the temple with God Himself, John implies that the whole city is a sanctuary. The whole place is where God lives. He's not confined to one little place anymore. He's living in the whole place. John sees the New Jerusalem as a temple city where He will live and where we will live with Him and see His face. I don't know if that verse ever trips you up, by the way. When I think of that, I often have thought, well, you know, what does seeing God's face mean? Well, it's, it's not rocket surgery. Jesus is the God-man. He's still today the God-man reigning at the right hand of God. So whose face are we going to see in the New Jerusalem? Jesus Christ. The face of God is the face of Jesus Christ. So when it says we're going to see his face, it doesn't mean some ethereal, abstract thing. We're going to see Jesus Christ face to face in the flesh in the New Jerusalem. That's the last temple. Now let's go back to the first temple. Let's go back to the, to the beginning. At the end, we see God living in a gigantic temple city. 
At the beginning of the Bible, we see the Garden of Eden portrayed as a divine sanctuary. I believe I've mentioned this several times as we've studied Genesis 1 through 3, but I want to stop down here yet again because these parallels are profound. There are numerous parallels that exist between the Garden of Eden and the later tabernacle and temple. I'm going to give you eight. It was ten. I took out two. If you want to read further, I can point you to some good resources on this. But let me give you a quick eight parallels between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and temple. Here we go. Number one, the presence of God is in Eden and in the later sanctuaries. God came and walked with them in the cool of the day. God's presence was in Eden and in the temple and tabernacle. Number two, after the fall, what guards the garden? This was last week. Who was listening? What's guarding the garden? Cherubim. What's also engraved in the curtains and in the walls of the tabernacle and temple? Cherubim. What's on top of the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. What's standing over the Ark of the Covenant? Cherubim. Yes. Number three, in the center of the garden is the tree of life. And in the center of the tabernacle and the temple, in the inner sanctuary, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the inner sanctuary, is a golden what? That branches out like a tree. A lampstand, the menorah. A branching lampstand. The tree of life in the middle of the temple. Four, the pair of Hebrew words in God's command to Adam when God told Adam to work and keep the garden. Those same two words are only used in combination right there and later in Numbers when Moses is describing what the Levites will do in the tabernacle. They will work it and keep it. Remember, Moses wrote Genesis and Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. He wrote the Pentateuch, so it makes sense that there are all kinds of literary connections. Five, moving quickly. Eden and the tabernacle and temple are entered from the east. The entrance of the Garden of Eden was on the east because that's where God put the cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. The tabernacle and temple are entered from the east, thus connecting the two. Number six, many of the decorative features of the tabernacle and temple point back to the garden. There was gold and onyx stones in Genesis 2. And they also were used in the tabernacle, the later sanctuaries, and also on the priestly garments would have these precious stones on them. There were flowers, trees, gourds, and pomegranates decorating the temple and the tabernacle. Of course, the garden was filled with all kinds of lush vegetation. So the decorative features of the tabernacle and temple point back to the garden. The place where God lives is a garden, garden-like holy place. Number seven. Number seven, the structure of the garden corresponds to the later temple. The structure of the garden corresponds to the later temple. What do I mean by that? Well, just as the temple had three sections, the outer courts, the inner sanctuary, and the Holy of Holies, so also in Genesis 1 and 2 we find the outer world, Eden, and the garden. The outer world where God says everything is very good, Eden which is where the rivers that water the garden originate, symbolizing that's where the presence of God is because life flows out from God's presence and waters the garden, and it's His servants, His priestly servants, live in the garden. So the garden is the inner sanctuary. Eden is the holy of holies where God lives. The outer world are the outer courts. Do you see the tripartite connections between three places in the world and three places in the temple? This is the kind of stuff I can just nerd out on. Please forgive me if this is just boring you to tears, but this is awesome. I love the Bible. Do you love the Bible? I pray you do. This is so much fun for me. I hope it's fun for you. Here we go. Last one. Number eight. Number eight. This is one maybe we haven't considered before. 
Remember what God did on the seventh day? He rested. He rested. We're tempted to hear the word rest and automatically think cease, cease from labor, cease from activity. But Jesus himself said, my father's always working. So what does Moses mean when he says that God rested? It's very likely that that seventh day is when the Lord God came and filled up his cosmic temple, the earth, and came and dwelt upon the earth. After creating the world, he comes and finds and takes up a resting place on the world. Psalm 132, 13 to 14 say, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Zion, of course, the mountain of God, the temple of God. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So, when the creation of the tabernacle and the temple are finished, when the creation of the world was finished, God takes up a resting place within them. What this means is, that the sovereign king has now, after he's defeated the forces of chaos, has now assumed a position of kingly rest. He has come to sit on his throne and rule his world. So, those are the eight ways that the garden points forward to the temple and tabernacle. The garden is purposefully portrayed to be the first temple, the first place where God lived with man on the earth. The garden was more than just a place with nice trees. The garden was more than a place where there was no sin, though there was no sin originally. The the garden was a place where God met with his priestly servants and dwelt with them. We can take that theme and trace it all the way to the end. The Garden of Eden was, you might remember, only a small part of the created world. The command in Genesis 1.28 is it. Adam and Eve would fill the earth and subdue the earth. Remember that? He didn't just say fill up the garden. He said fill up the earth. He didn't just say subdue the garden. He said subdue the earth. Exercise dominion over the whole earth. So it seems that God's design is that mankind would begin in the garden and then extend out beyond the garden, pushing the boundaries of the garden further and further as they cultivate God's very good world and rule over it. So Genesis 2 introduces the start of this process. God intended those boundaries to be extended so that over time the whole world would become a temple garden city where God and man would live together. God's goal was to establish a garden-like temple city where God and humanity would coexist in perfect harmony on the earth. This was God's blueprint for the earth. God wanted the entire world to be his dwelling place with his people. Now, of course, Genesis 3 tells us that this, bl- this blueprint was tragically interrupted by Adam and Eve's disobedience. By following the serpent instead of God, Adam and Eve failed to maintain the sanctity of the garden temple. And as a result, their priestly status is revoked and they're expelled from the sanctuary complex. They no longer have immediate access to God or live in God's temple garden. Their actions hinder the fulfillment of God's blueprint that the whole earth would become a holy garden city. But Revelation 21 through 22 tell us that God will complete this, this blueprint in the new Jerusalem. In other words, we can, be, um, rest, we can rest assured that God will finish what he started. Sin will not win. 
God will push out the boundaries of the garden, so to speak. He will rule the world with His people once again. Adam and Eve's actions halted God's plan to fill the world with His presence, but God wasn't caught off guard. Despite their rebellion, He graciously embarks on a process, a lengthy process designed to reverse what they've done and bring His plan for creation to completion. God first reestablishes his presence on the earth through the tabernacle, then the temple. Then God puts on flesh and comes to live among us. Then after Jesus ascends to heaven, he sends his spirit and creates the church, his body on the earth. So garden, tabernacle, temple, Jesus, spirit, church. Can we talk about the church for a moment? Okay, how is the church the presence of God? The New Testament makes this crystal clear that the church has superseded the temple as the place where God's presence dwells. I tell you, this is is exciting stuff. Please listen carefully. If, If what I'm about to read is true, God himself lives with us. The God who spoke galaxies into existence is living with us. Thank you. That's an amen worthy statement. Not because I said it, but because God says it. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Paul says, so then, uh, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're where God lives. But he goes on, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, the Lord, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is building his people together by his Spirit to be his temple. Each local church provides God with a local habitation. God lives with the church. I'm tempted to do some application here. I'll wait. No, I won't. I'm going to go ahead and go for it. This means that what we do on Sunday mornings is massively important for you and your family and the world. If the church, not the nebulous idea of the church of like every Christian kind of floating around the world, but the gathered ecclesia, ecclesia literally means gathering, the assembly of the people of God. If and when the church gets together, God is with us. So that something of heaven comes down and meets us on the earth. And I need that because this life is hard. And I need to be reminded what heaven is like every Sunday. I'm getting ahead of myself. The New Testament says more about the church as the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Could it be any plainer than that? Church, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Don't mess with the church. Don't mess. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not the elders' church. It's not the SBC's church. It's not Preston Highlands' church. Don't. This is God's church. It's holy. You don't mess with the holy things of God. The you's there. You are, are God's temple are plural. So Paul is saying that it's the corporate body of Christ that's the temple of God, not just individual believers. That comes later in 1 Corinthians 6, where it says that our body is the temple of the Spirit. So we shouldn't link our bodies with prostitutes and live in sexual immorality. 
Here in 1 Corinthians 3, it's a plural. You, local church, are the place where God lives. 1 Corinthians 14 goes on to say that when an unbeliever comes into the church's gathering, it says the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. How could that happen? Many of, this, many of, of, of us may have had this experience where you go to church and you're like, how did the pastor know that that was happening to me? How did that song just touch me that way? That prayer, that conversation, that loving, you know, encouraging word. How did God meet me like that right there? Because God lives with us. People can literally meet God in our gatherings. So come early, stay late. Come ready to offer encouraging words. You have no idea how a God who loves you and those around you wants to use you to minister you to those around you. You have no idea what people are going through. Just ask, just pray, just engage those people around you. You are the temple of God. You have something to offer. This is also why Paul tells the church to remove the person living in unrepentant sin. In 1 Corinthians 5, this man is committing gross sin. And Paul says remove, he tells the church, he doesn't tell the elders, he tells the church to remove that person from their fellowship. Why? So that holiness may be restored in God's temple. God is holy and he expects his people not to be perfect. We are perfect in Christ, thank God. But to be pursuing holiness. And those who say, I can believe in Jesus and then do whatever I want are probably not believers. Because the New Testament says everything against that. Those who say I am with Christ are striving to live like Christ more and more with others every day. They're resisting sin. They're not perfect. They're hurting. They're they're wounded. They're sinning left and right. But they're trying to grow in Christ. They're not giving up. They're not just throwing in the towel and saying, you know what, I prayed a prayer, I'm going to heaven, I'm good, so I can kind of just do whatever I want. No! (laughs) No! Paul says, get that person out from among you. Not because the church is some club of super righteous people, but because the church is where the holy God lives. The New Testament goes on to talk about God's people living in a new city. Hebrews 11.10, For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 13.14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're a temple seeking a city. We're a temple longing for a city. We're a temple living for a city that doesn't have foundations, a city that's not named Dallas, a city that's not named America, a city that has no political affiliation. We're living for a city that is literally created. What did it say? Its designer and builder is God. We're looking for a kingdom of God. We're living for another city that transcends all of these worldly cities. The theme of God wanting to live in a city with his people on the earth progresses from Eden to the tabernacle, to the temple, to Christ, to the church, to the new Jerusalem. God's goal was to establish a garden-like temple city where God and humanity would coexist in perfect harmony on the earth. This 
was and is his blueprint for the earth. God wants the entire world to be his dwelling place. That his glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. This is still his goal. It will always be his goal and it will come to pass. What does any of this have to do with us? John, thank you for backing up the dump truck of biblical theology and dumping it on us. Does this mean anything for our life today? I think it does. What do these things mean for us? Let me just give you four implications that came to mind as I thought over these things this week. Four implications of these truths. Number one, sin and suffering will not last forever. Sin and suffering will not last forever. Those who belong to Christ will live in a world free from bad things and all the sad things they cause. Our living hope is that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, 1 Peter 1, 3-4. There's no expiration date on what God is preparing for His people and will bring for His people. I'm so glad Jared pointed this out in our training class this morning. This doesn't mean that we minimize people's affliction. Please don't do that. Please weep with those who weep. We don't just like pretend we're okay and everything's wonderful when it's not. Don't be a pretender. Be honest with yourself about what's really going on. Be honest with God. Be honest with those around you. But as you walk in that honesty, also walk with an honest hope that this is not the end. That there's an ending to this story that is glorious and bright, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. There's a kingdom coming where you won't be sad anymore. As Alberta was doing the scripture reading earlier, the phrase that struck me was, I guess it's 21 verse 4, nor pain anymore, nor pain. Do any of you have pain? Like, we have all kinds of pain. And I'm not talking about like, oh, my back hurts a little bit, though that might be part of it. My neck is hurting because I did some mowing yesterday, and it's been, you know, six months since I mowed the yard, and now I'm sore. All kinds of pain will be gone. All pain. All pain. All pain. Jesus was pained to create a pain-free existence for us one day. Sin and suffering will not last forever. Number two. Second implication. The next world is going to look like this world more than you think. The next world is going to look like this world more than you think. God's plan is to remake the world. Heaven isn't going to be an ethereal, abstract existence in some airy space. It'll be tangible, touchable, concrete, physical, and material. Yes, we'll have spiritual bodies, but we'll have spiritual bodies in a new world. There will be joyful cultivation of God's creation, also known as work. Heaven won't be without toil, work without toil. Heaven won't be an unending worship service where we sing holy, holy, holy on repeat for eons. I love that hymn as much as you do. 
And certainly the angels sitting around the throne of God forever and ever and ever. But in the new earth, on the new earth, there will be work, fellowship, life, relationships. If you want to dig more into this topic, because I need to go on, pick up Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. Randy Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. I think we have it in the church library. The next world is going to look like this world more than you think. Third, third implication. God's plan on the earth is to save sinners and recreate the earth. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So in Christ, God is working to redeem a people and fix the world. All things are going to be reconciled. Ephesians 1, 8 or 9, it says that all things will be united in Christ. Everything will find its center point in Jesus Christ. Everything. Not just your soul in some abstract existence, but the entire cosmos will come and be reconciled under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, God is redeeming a people and restoring the world. Both are true. Both are needed. Sinners need forgiveness. And the world needs fixing. We often focus on the personal aspects of Jesus' work. And sometimes we miss the cosmic scope of what God is doing in Christ. Yes, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But He also came to make all things new. It's not either or, it's both and. Christians and churches should therefore care about the souls of people who are lost. And we should also care to reveal the glory and the righteousness of God's coming kingdom by not ignoring matters of evil or social injustice. Piper said it best, 2010 Congress on World World Evangelization. Piper says, one truth is, That when the gospel takes root in our souls and impels us out toward the alleviation of all unjust suffering in this age, that's what love does. The other truth truth is that when the gospel takes root in our souls, it awakens us to the horrible reality of eternal suffering in hell under the wrath of a just and omnipotent God. It impels us to rescue the perishing and to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. I plead with you, he says, don't choose between those two truths. Embrace them both. It doesn't mean you'll spend your time all in the same way, God forbid. But it does mean that we let the Bible define reality and we let the Bible define love. Could the evangelical church say, we Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal sufferings? He says, I hope we can say that. But if we feel resistant to saying, especially eternal suffering, or if we feel resistant to saying, we care about all suffering in this age, then either we have a defective view of hell or a defective heart. I pray that we would have neither, end quote. I pray that our church has neither. The gospel compels us outward to the lost. The gospel compares us outward to the hurting. The gospel doesn't just say, hey, here's your ticket, you get to go to heaven one day. Have fun out there. 
It says, no, now there's the Spirit of God who lives in you, who wants to gather in the elect of God from all the nations of the world and to alleviate as much injustice as we can. So when there's an evil leader of a country like Russia who invades a country like Ukraine, we say, no, that ought not be. And we pray that it would stop. And some of us, like Maddie Ellis, Lord bless her, get on a plane and go over there and start working to help refugees. The rest of us give. The rest of us pray. We have so many ways we can do this. You can mow your neighbor's yard. You can go to an abortion clinic. You can organize food at a food pantry. You can give money to a homeless shelter. You can talk to your friends about racism. You can do a number of things to alleviate injustice in this world. But what we must not do is say that we only do one thing at the expense of the other. Why? Because the kingdom of God is coming. The reality of the coming of a bright and glorious kingdom where justice rolls on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream compels us to do all that we can to plead with people to bow their knee to the king of this coming kingdom and compels us to do all that we can as we're able to promote every just cause that we're able to so that something of our king's goodness and justice is seen on this earth now. May God keep us from a defective view of hell and a defective heart. And remember what Paul said in Romans 13. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you love the God who you worship, you will do all that you can to see others come into His worship. You will do all that you can to see His kingdom revealed on this earth. Number four, finally. Fourth implication of this truth. Because the local church is where God lives, the local church must take membership and discipline seriously. The church is made up of its members. The church is not just anyone who shows up on a Sunday. Its members are called to help each other look more and more like Jesus, to reflect Jesus' goodness and kindness and truth and love. His members come together in covenant relationships, making promises to do and be certain things for the sake of Christ in our midst. To be a member of a church is to be vitally connected to a church, like a limb to your body. Like how connected is your arm to your shoulder? Pretty connected, right? Not just hanging on by a thread. It's vitally connected. That's what church membership is. We're members of the same body. Christ is the head. All of us are members and everyone has a function. And the health of the whole comes through the members serving and loving, ministering to one another. Church membership isn't like joining a club for its benefits or services. It's committing oneself to the good of a local body, even as that body commits itself to your own good. Our church's covenant outlines a set of promises that we make to one another as fellow members of Preston Highlands Baptist Church, promises intended to help us help each other look more and more like Jesus. If, and here's why this is important, if the church is where God lives, then church members should actively be helping one another look more and more like God. Let me say that again. 
If the church is where God lives, then church members should be actively working to help one, one another look more and more like God. Bearing one another's burdens, praying for one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, showing hospitality to one another. God's goal is to establish a garden-like temple city where He will live with His people forever in perfect harmony. This is His blueprint from the beginning to the end of the Bible. God wants the entire world to be His dwelling place. This is still His goal. It will come to pass. It started in Eden, moved to the tabernacle, the temple, to Christ, the church, and then one day will be fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. How are we looking more and more like what is coming? How are we as a church reflecting more and more the kingdom that is coming? How are you, brother and sister, looking more and more like your Christ, your King, who will bring His kingdom? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we've covered a lot of terrain. So much more can be said. So we look now to you and your spirit to come and help us to sift through these things, to take the things that we need to take, to apply them to our lives so that we might not be hearers only but doers of your word. Thank you for the grand story of the Bible. Thank you for the beauty that is the Word of God. Thank you for how you've not left us in the dark, but given us great and beautiful promises. Lord, many of us are facing affliction in various ways. Please comfort us. Please help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Help us to live for the city that has foundations built by God. May our hope of heaven outstretch our hopes on this earth. Help us to focus on things that are unseen rather than things that are seen. Because the things that are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen are forever. Give us eyes to see this world in its proper perspective. Give us courage and strength and grace and wisdom to live as your ambassadors as your children in this world, together as your holy temple, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.